You are now listening to Testimonies with Terry. Welcome to the final episode of Season 1 of Testimonies with Terry. Today you'll be hearing from the man behind the mic, my husband and my best friend, Terry Skaggs. Throughout his life, Terry encountered anxiety, which eventually led to an identity crisis and an eating disorder. Throughout it all, you'll hear how Terry questioned and searched for his newfound identity until he encountered the love and transformation of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my man, Terry Skaggs' testimony. Hey guys, this is Abby. A little different today, so I'm going to be interviewing my husband, Terry, and you'll get to know a little bit more about the voice behind all the podcasts that you've been listening to the last, I think it would be eight weeks now, Terry? Okay. Um, so thank you for agreeing to be on the opposite side of the mic today. Yeah, it's a little different for me, but, uh, I'm excited. Yeah. Um, so I believe what you always start out with is tell us about what family life was like for you and where you grew up. So I grew up in a small town, uh, Foley, Minnesota, I'm actually closer to Gilman, Minnesota, which is an even smaller town than Foley. Just your typical small town, country town, not a whole lot going on. Um, Just, yeah, that small town country vibe where everybody knows everybody. People are generally nice, uh, hard workers. People look out for each other. So that's where I grew up, and I grew up with my parents, who are still together to this day, my older sister and two younger sisters. So what was it like growing up being the only boy in your family? I mean, definitely had its advantages. Being the only boy, I guess I didn't really have to worry about hand-me-downs. So <laughs> I would, well, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, so I would always get new stuff, I guess, so that was nice. Um, also being a boy... I didn't really have to share my toys uh, because my sisters weren't really into the things that I was into, at least as far as I can remember. So, um, yeah, I guess that was kind of nice. But, um, you know, I honestly, there was probably times where I wish that I had a brother. But honestly, I think it was great growing up with three sisters um, just because it helped me learn to become aware and attentive to emotions, which obviously is a huge deal in my job now as a therapist. Now, at that time, I may have been aware of my sister's and my mom's emotions. It's not like I did anything with them or really uh, supported them in in any way. So uh, that skill came later in life. But yeah, overall, it was it was pretty good being the only boy. My dad was gone a lot of the time. He uh, is, was, and is the primary uh, provider for our family. And 
he does road construction. And so, yeah, he would work 50, 60 hours a week. And during the summer, 70 to 80 hours a week. And, and my mom worked uh, part-time as well uh, at a nursing home. And um, she just uh, made sure that she could be around uh, for us kids and take care of us kids, you know, when we were off of school and, and things like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, not having my dad around a whole lot. I think I was just really blessed to be super close with my cousin. Uh, my cousin, Brandon, he's about a month older than I am. And throughout our childhood, man, we were inseparable. We would spend, I mean, weeks at each other's house during the summer, just hanging out and just, man, I just have so many good memories of, of hanging out with him. And my mom's parents lived a mile, not even a mile away from our house. And so I got to go there and hang out with Grandpa Ernie and my Uncle Lyle and drive tractors with them and get rides on the three-wheelers. And then my dad's parents lived in St. Cloud, which is at that time probably about a 40-minute drive. And uh, I would get to hang out with them and my Grandpa Mel and Grandpa Mel is the one who taught me how to play basketball and we'd shoot hoops together and watch sports together. And so, yeah, with, with my dad gone a lot during the week, I'm just thankful that I had uh, a lot of other male influences in my life, especially since I was the only boy in the family. And then on the weekends, yeah, I would, I would look forward to seeing my dad. So what was childhood like for you then? Childhood was... I would say I look back on it with a lot of fond memories and then probably a lot of just hard times and, and kind of painful memories. You know, the positive memories I kind of alluded to earlier, hanging out with my cousin Brandon, playing, we'd play Super Nintendo at my house and Sega at his house. And I I just, to this day, and you know this, and I know it annoys you, but I just love anything that reminds me of my childhood 90s pop culture. And so, um, yeah, I just really enjoyed um, that aspect of my childhood. The harder things, I would say, was probably just the fact that I was overweight as a child. I didn't really know I was overweight until probably second grade. Second grade, I can remember it was the first time a classmate. Uh, had called me fat and would pick on me for for being fat. And I remember going home and I weighed myself on the scale and it said 100 pounds. And in my little mind, even then I was just like, whoa, like triple digits, like that doesn't seem right. And I remember going out to the living room, sitting down and just kind of being dejected. And I told my mom, you know, mom, I, I weighed myself on the scale. I'm hundred pounds. Does that mean I'm fat? And she didn't really know what to say. Yeah. You know, what do you say to a, a kid when they ask that? Um, especially when they are legitimately overweight. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think she just, you know, said, no, you're fine. But, um, I didn't feel reassured like that the seed was kind of already planted uh, about just my weight and, and me being overweight. That kind of uh, followed me a little bit throughout my childhood. I remember in third grade, 
sometimes towards the end of the day, if we were good, we'd be able to go outside and um, play on the jungle gym and, and out in the playground for the last half hour or so of the day. And I remember one particular day where it was really nice out. We were able to go out and uh, all the guys in my class were starting a game of football. And it was kind of the classic, you know, there's two captains, pick your team scenario. And I loved football. I still love football. But I was the last one available to be picked and no one wanted to pick me. Mm. And I remember like just being really just sad and frustrated that, well, come on, why won't anyone pick me? And I think someone had made a comment that, oh, because it's your, because you're fat or something like that. And so I pivoted. I really just wanted to be involved anyways. And so I uh, would watch them and I pretended to be the sideline reporter. And so whenever a team would score a touchdown, I'd run onto the field with my pretend imaginary microphone and try to interview them. And I guess they let me be included that way. But yeah, I mean, it was hard. There, there weren't too many people in my class who were overweight. And so there was kind of that bullseye on me. And yeah, that, uh, that was hard. Yeah. Um, so I know when I first met you, the, the big turnaround or rather like downhill section of your life began in eighth grade. Is that right? Yeah, eighth grade. So January of 2004, this would have been my parents got a treadmill for the downstairs and it was mostly for my mom. She just wanted to work out. And I remember the first day we got it, I went on it and I think I ran for 15, 20 minutes. And I remember just feeling really good afterwards. I, I, I just felt, wow, like I just ran 15, 20 minutes. I'd probably never ran that far or for that long in my life prior to that. And so I kind of got in the habit of, of, of running on the treadmill and I don't know, I guess something just kind of clicked in my mind where I was just like, okay, well, you know, I could probably lose weight, you know, if I do this. And so that kind of led to counting calories. And I remember the first thing that I actually counted was chocolate milk growing up. That's all I drank was chocolate milk, but yeah, I, I started counting calories and uh, one thing just kind of led to the next, uh, you know, being married to me that I kind of have an obsessive personality when I get really into something. And I remember I would go on websites and because we would eat out a lot, I would go to like McDonald's, uh, website or Taco John's website. And I would, uh, just look up how much calories are in what I typically ordered from those places and I would just kind of like figure out, well, you know, how could I cook calories? Well, I could get a McChicken from McDonald's, but then not get mayo on it. That would save like a couple hundred calories, according to their website. Um, I could switch to sweet and sour sauce instead of barbecue sauce because that had less calories. And it, um, yeah, it just kind of really became a game of like, well, what's the lowest amount of calories that, that I could eat? And so I did that. And I remember even in school at lunch, I think some days I would get maybe like a dinner roll and that would be it. And I remember talking to my friends at the table and just being like, well, so did you know that, you know, if you got 
sweet and sour sauce instead of barbecue sauce at McDonald's. You know, you'd save a couple calories and everyone just kind of looked at me weird, like, well, who cares, <laughs> right? It, it just became an obsession for me. And um, that quickly escalated into me trying to run off all the calories that I would eat during a day. And so again, counting calories before it was just, how do I get the lowest amount of calories possible? Now it evolved into how do I just make it so that I essentially am getting zero calories a day. And so I remember I would get up and I would have my breakfast count, you know, the calories in everything, go on the treadmill, run those all off. I would go to school and I can't remember what I did for lunch. I don't know how I did that. But then, you know, for supper, I would again count the calories and then go on the treadmill and run it off. And so obviously, you know, running and working out became a huge part of my life. And it it, it just got really bad. It got bad to the point where I remember kind of my typical meals. Like, so this would be during the summer of 2004 when we were out of school I would have one piece of bread that I'd put in the toaster to kind of harden up a little bit. I'd put a piece of fat-free bologna on it, and then I would have a can of Diet Pepsi vanilla, and that would be my meal. And then I would go and run it off. And the thing with like eating disorders is that you can't get your mind off of food because you're depriving yourself of it so much. It's all you think about. And so I, I was very regimented, like I would eat at specific times during the day. And I think like my lunch would be at like 11 noon. And so after I'd ate my breakfast and ran those calories off, I remember just kind of sitting around waiting. It was just like, I can't wait to eat again because I was so hungry. I would have dreams about food. I would have dreams about going to the grocery store and getting like, a hungry man meal or something like that, just because I was so hungry. And um, yeah, lunch would come around and so I could eat and uh, then, you know, wait around for another couple hours. I would have a pretty early supper. I would eat supper probably around four o'clock and then eat that and then go on the treadmill and run it off. And, and that was kind of a typical day, you know, um, outside of that, uh, sometimes I would switch up my diet by having a bowl of frosted flakes for lunch. I, I do remember that, except I, I wouldn't put milk in it. And that's just, I've never been a milk in my cereal type of guy. That's just a, a quirk of mine. But I remember I would pour a bowl of frosted flakes and I would sit down on the couch, watch TV, and I would eat one flake at a time and I would chew it so slowly and just savor every bite because I wanted it to last because I knew that once that bowl was gone, man, I'm not going to be able to eat for another couple hours. And I just want to enjoy this and drag it out for as long as I can. And I mean, looking back, even as I'm talking about this now, it's just like, it's, that's just nuts. You know, that's crazy, but that's where I was at. It, it was all consuming. It was completely taken over my life. So I know that did it to this day, like you're very into list making. Were you one of those people that was like obsessively logging like your calories and your food throughout the day? 
I don't recall writing anything down. I think just in my mind, I, and you know, I kind of have a photographic memory. I would just remember things. And, and again, I would just eat the same things day after day after day. And so I knew like yeah. it, it just became a routine for me that, okay, yep. You know, like 220 calories for breakfast and maybe like 240, 260 for lunch or whatever the numbers would be. I'm just kind of making up numbers yeah. there, but. Yeah. So obviously, like just being overweight as a kid kind of triggered things. What else was going on, like in your mind, anxiety wise? Like, what were you worrying about at this time as well? Yeah, that's a good question. I I always dealt with anxiety as a kid, um, and I, I anxiety runs in in the family, specifically my mom's side of the family. Uh, Pretty sure all my sisters have struggled with anxiety as well. And my mom has really struggled with it. So yeah, anxiety was just kind of always there. Uh, even from a young age, I remember probably even in second grade, I would see the school counselor, Miss Lestico, and she would just kind of talk to me about anxiety, but I didn't really understand it at the time. It got really bad in fourth grade. I remember fourth grade. Uh, my mom and dad had gone on a cruise and I remember just being so fearful that, well, what if they don't come back? Mm -hmm. What if I, you know, just have to live with Brandon, you know, and my aunt and uncle the rest of my life, which, you know, wouldn't be horrible, but I'd rather live with my parents. And so I remember just, yeah, going to school and, um, just crying and, and just being so worried, like, are they coming back? Are they coming back? Um, you know, Foley is a, is a big Catholic community. The whole area is a Catholic community. And so like halfway during the day on Wednesdays, there'd be a group of kids that would be shuttled over to the Catholic school and they would do the last half of the day over there at the Catholic church. And I remember even that I would have so much anxiety about, well, what if they, uh, don't get back to the school on time and then our class doesn't get released on time and then I miss the bus and then I can't go home and see my mom. And and I would just get so worried and I would just bawl. Like I hated Wednesdays and it was hard because I don't feel like I really got reassurance in the way that I needed it from anybody at that time. And I think, you know, especially as a kid, that's one of the biggest things that you can do to help a kid with anxiety is to give them reassurance and console them. I don't feel like I really had that. I think, uh, well, I know my mom was just really frustrated and I, and I, I can see why, you know, just getting reports from the teachers multiple times a week, you know, that Terry had a rough day and Terry wasn't able to do this cause he, you know, was anxious or cause he was crying. And so I know mom would just get really frustrated and just like, why can't you just get through the day, you know, and, and I didn't have an answer. I, I mean, what f fourth grade, I was seven years old at the time. I don't, I didn't know what to say. And so, yeah, anxiety was just kind of always part of my life. Uh, catching up to, you know, eighth grade year, I think it was just anxiety about being accepted, right. You know, eighth grade. And we've talked about this, I think with pretty much every guest on the podcast so far, that seventh, eighth grade, when, when you're going through puberty and you're, you're growing and you're maturing and you're developing, um, obviously at that time I was, you know, interested in girls and 
I just had a lot of anxiety, but also just a lot of low self-esteem, you know, what girl would ever want to be with me or, um, outside of the core group of friends that I have who would want to be friends with me. And so I think just kind of being anxious about that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like kind of after fourth grade, like crying at school wasn't a big deal afterwards, but obviously that anxiety and those fears are still, you know, in your mind and in your heart. Do you feel like part of your bullying was because you were more sensitive as a kid as well as the weight issue or not so much? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And uh, yeah, I guess I never really thought about that, but yeah, I was always a, a really sensitive kid and, um, yeah, I'm sure that made me a target because I, I didn't feel like I could fight back. I didn't know how I, I could fight back. You know, I could, I could tell a teacher, but they can only do so much. They can tell the kid to stop, you know, don't call, you know, Terry fat anymore. Or I remember, I think it was like in fifth grade, there'd be a kid that would spit on me, mm. uh, on the playground, like pretty much every day. And my mom ended up getting involved in that one and calling the kid's parent and, and that stopped. But yeah, I think just being sensitive and and not knowing how to stand up for myself and just having really low self-esteem, even from a young age, definitely played a role in in me being bullied and in effect, you know, just having anxiety as well. Mm -hmm. So at what point uh, did you finally get help for your eating disorder? Yeah, so that's a pretty vivid memory. So I, again kind of backing up a little bit, I'd kind of gone into the summer of 2004. The The end of the school year, May, I remember people were talking uh, about me, like, you know, classmates. I even had teachers um, come up to me for anyone that went to Foley and knows Miss Brand. You know that what I'm about to say was probably really out of character for her. But even Miss Brand, she kept me after class one day and she said, are you okay? I'm, I'm worried about you. And Miss Brand was this old lady who was pretty harsh, pretty, you know, no nonsense. Her, her famous phrase would be, who's talking and for what reason? Uh, she did not like people talking in her class. And so I remember that really just kind of being like, whoa, like even Miss Brand of all people is worried about me. And uh, one of my classmates, I remember we were walking out uh, to the uh, playground or something like that. And he just put his hand on my chest and all he felt was bone. And he was just like, whoa. And the thing about that is that when people would make those comments to me, I loved it. And it sounds so perverse and twisted now because it is. But that's just how the mind works during an eating disorder is that when people would make comments on, whoa, you're really skinny. Oh, you lost a lot of weight. That just fueled me. That gave me more motivation. Like in my mind, it was just like, yeah, you think I lost a lot of weight. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, and it would motivate me to, to lose even more weight. And so obviously that's a recipe for death. And that's the road that I was headed down. I... Uh, in June of 2004, so getting back to your question of when when did I finally get help, um, during the summers every year I would spend a week at my grandma and grandpa's house in St. Cloud, and I loved that. So many awesome memories of doing that. 
uh, getting to, again, spend time with my grandpa, shoot hoops. We'd go out to KFC for my birthday. They had cable TV and we didn't at home so I could watch, you know, Nickelodeon and, and those shows. And, uh, yeah, so for my 14th birthday, I was spending, you know, the week with them and I was sitting in the living room with my grandma. I think my grandpa was at work at the time. And it was, it was during the evening and we were watching TV and my grandma just kind of nonchalantly said, you know, are you doing okay? Do you, do you need some help? And I denied it, you know, just like I had however many times before. And then she just, you know, dropped it for probably a good 10, 15 minutes. And then she brought it up again. Terry, are you sure you're okay? Do you need help? I'm worried about you. And that was it. That was the breaking point for me. I just broke down in tears. I started sobbing. I started bawling. I just said, yeah, I, I need help. I, I, I need help. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And, um, that was, a a really hard night, but a really freeing night to finally acknowledge and admit that I have a problem and I need help. And I mean, you, you talk about working with addicts and they always say, you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem. And I mean, that's, I was an addict. I was addicted to working out and losing weight. And up until that point, I didn't want to admit that I had a problem, but it was just, yeah, I don't know. Me and grandma Carol have always had a pretty special bond. And so just her showing that level of care for me, I guess that's what I needed. That's what I needed to finally break down and admit that I needed help. And I remember she called my mom and uh, the next day they got me into a couple different appointments. One was just a general physical and the other was therapy and kind of ironic now being a therapist. I hated therapy. I didn't want therapy. I think I went to see the guy one or two times and he wanted to talk about the underlying issues, right? The anxiety and, and you know, the control and the obsessiveness and things like that. I didn't want to talk about that. I just wanted, what I really wanted was someone to tell me, this is what you need to eat. Because I didn't know how to eat. You know, I, I just, I was out of control. And so I only did therapy probably twice. But uh, yeah, I, I had the physical and that did not go well. Just to give you guys a a reference point, I I vividly remember, and it's crazy how, I don't know, I'm able to recall all this, but I remember weighing myself January of 2004, and I was either a hundred and no, I was 185 pounds in January of 2004. By June of 2004, at this physical, I was down to 116 pounds second grade, you were at 100 pounds. So essentially, your body has doubled in height, more than likely at this point in time. And you barely gained weight um, compared to second grade. And so obviously, that's got to be really devastating for your body at this point in time, too, just because your body's trying to grow and go through puberty, right? Yeah. I, I mean, again, such a key and pivotal developmental age at 14 years old. And I dropped, I don't know, I'm horrible at math, 185 down to 116. What is that? 60 some pounds, 70 some pounds. 
Like that is absolutely nuts and and just stupid, you know, to to drop that much weight at that age. Uh, like you said, at, at the time when I started working out, yeah, you know, puberty had hit. I had stretched out and I was always one of the taller ones in my class and I just kind of stretched out. And so, you know, if, if I wouldn't have done what I did uh, with going through the eating disorder, I probably would have like turned out like, quote unquote, quote unquote, just fine. Right. Because I, I was stretching out and um, and yeah, I would have probably had a pretty normal body type, but. I, uh, I took control of the process and that's the big thing with eating disorders is that you feel that so much of your life is out of control and food, that's the one thing you can control Mm -hmm. working out. That's the one thing I can control. And so I really just honed in on that. And yeah, at, uh, at the doctor's appointment, yeah, it was 116 pounds, ended up passing out, uh, just from, I, I don't know. I mean, I, pass out a lot anyways. So, but I think just, uh, I think just the exhaustion and, and just the emotional toll that, that I was going through, I had passed out. And yeah, after that, my mom, uh, and and my dad had kind of got me hooked up with a dietitian, which is what I really wanted. Like I said, I really just wanted someone to like create like a meal plan for me and tell me what I needed to eat. I just needed to be told what to do. And so I would see a dietitian at the health plaza in St. Cloud. And then uh, I went, my grandma drove my mom and me down to a place in the Twin Cities that is escaping my mind at the moment. But I went there a couple of times for some more specialized help. And so that was pretty much my summer, you know, in between eighth grade and ninth grade was really just going to treatment and, and rehabilitating myself and learning how to eat healthy and trying to change my thought patterns. And yeah, that's, uh, kind of how that happened. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned before, like a big part of the struggle with eating disorder for you was just trying to take control what do you feel like you're trying to take control of like at this point in your life? Yeah, I, I think that I just felt so powerless and helpless when it came to like being accepted for who I was. And I mean, mind you, I had a pretty good group of friends. So it's not like I was this loner who was like, didn't have any friends. I, I had friends, but I think just... I don't know, maybe looking back at it, just wanting to be popular and maybe feeling rejected by the popular kids and uh, thinking that, well, you know, it's probably because I'm fat. And so if I lost weight, you know, maybe I could be popular. Maybe the girls would like me, you know, kind of things like that. So, yeah, I mean, there there wasn't anything super chaotic going on in my life at that time. I think it was just, you know, the combination of not being happy with how I looked and the drive to be accepted, the drive to be liked by everybody, um, which is really ironic because eighth grade they do uh, in my school, they would do like the class. I don't know what they call them class awards at the end of the year. And there was a most down to earth category and I won 
that uh, me and Donna Gottage were most down to earth in eighth grade. And I didn't even really know what that meant at the time. And then someone just kind of explained, oh, it just means that, you know, you're really nice and people like you. And that was just a really shock, you know, a big shock to me. I'm just like, whoa, like people like me, like outside of my friend group, people like me. So, but yeah, again, my thoughts, my mindset was so distorted at that time in my life that I, I wasn't seeing any truth whatsoever. So you mentioned how your grandma specifically really spoke life over you and encouraged you to get help. Did your parents or siblings ever attempt to do that prior to your grandma speaking out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember mom and dad would, would make comments about, you know, just kind of being concerned at, at how much weight I was losing. And they had, yeah, they had asked if I wanted help or needed help. And I said, no, like anybody with an eating disorder says until they're ready to admit that they have a problem. So yeah, they, they definitely noticed, you know, it's not like my parents were oblivious, uh, by any means of what was going on. Um, I was just really stubborn and, you know, they, they weren't going to get me in a vehicle to, to go get me help until I was ready. So going through the therapy process and as well as meeting up with a dietitian, do you feel like you gained any healing or um, recovery in carrying out those therapies? Well, like I said, I didn't really follow through with therapy. I only went one or once or twice. Um, meeting with the dietitian, getting that meal plan, I think that was helpful and I remember it was probably in August of that summer where I just told my mom and, and my dad that, yeah, I'm done. You know, I, I'm, I think I'm good. I don't need help anymore. And looking back on it, uh, that was probably pretty premature. Not that I struggled per se without going, but I don't know. It's kind of hard to describe. I just still wasn't in a really solid place. I, I, you know, I'd put on weight and, um, you know, was starting to get healthy, but my mindset still wasn't the greatest, you know, the, uh, the insecurities didn't really go away. The anxiety didn't really go away. Uh, it actually probably got a little bit worse. Just going back to school, going back to school for my freshman year of high school, you know, no one, I, I kind of went AWOL. No one had heard from me or seen from me over the summer. And so I come back and I'd grown my hair out over the summer too. And so here comes Terry, who's still pretty skinny, you know, kind of, you know, shaggy hair. And people are just like, Hey, like, how was your summer? Are you okay? Like, you know, we, and I don't know, maybe again, it's a small town where it gets around, but you know, they would even ask me, so, you know, you doing good with the eating disorder type of stuff. And so I just remember being really uncomfortable talking about that and i would just be like yeah yeah it's it's good it's fine um but yeah the insecurities and uh maybe even anxiety didn't necessarily go away just getting the treatment that i did how did your parents handle your diagnosis like were they overly concerned or they just wanted you to get help and get better so my family never really talked about feelings. We were never really an emotional family still to this day, not really an emotional family. You know, we're not the family that's going to say, I love you or, or give hugs or, or 
things like that to each other. I think my mom and dad were just trying to figure out how to navigate through this. Obviously, this was new territory for them. And yeah, I mean, I think just kind of the the aspect too is that it's not one of my sisters dealing with an eating disorder, which is more common. It's it's their son, which you don't hear a lot about. Um, I think nowadays you hear about it more and I'm happy that I get to share my story and kind of break that stigma. But I think, yeah, they were just kind of like confused on like, what do we do with this? How, how do we do this? And, um, I, I, I know like financially it was a big stressor for them. I remember not that they ever said it, but I just, kind of took on pressure for myself to be like, okay, well, I, I got to kind of hurry up and get better because I know this is costing them money and I don't want to be a burden to them, so to speak. I guess it just wasn't really spoken a lot about, you know, it was acknowledged that there was a problem and that we were going to with the dietitian and, and getting help for it, but it wasn't really anything that was talked about at home, you know, really no checkups to see how are you doing? you know, how, how are things going? And so, yeah, we just never really verbalized our love and support for each other in general. Um, but we would show it other ways, you know, like, you know, my dad, my dad would still to this day, you know, he works still to this day, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. And anytime I need help with something, he's there. And, uh, and same with my mom, you know, anytime I need something, she's, she's always there. And so, yeah, even though maybe we didn't talk about it verbally, their actions definitely showed that they were supportive. And, and again, you know, I think this was just something that they were learning as they go and there's really no guidebook for it. Right. And so I'm just thankful that my parents, um, did, you know, get me the help that I needed and, you know, paid for it and uh, were that source of support in that way for me. So going on to the remainder of your high school years, what was the rest of high school like for you? High school was really fun, actually. Looking back at it, I just have so many good memories, and I, I often think about them to this day, just kind of reminiscing on just kind of the stupid, innocent, harmless things we would do. You know, me and uh, our group of friends – I get, we were goof offs. We were, we were kind of pranksters, but it was all pretty harmless. Like we never intentionally hurt anyone. And, and I think people really loved us for that. You know, we were, we, we were the group of, of guys that we could kind of hang out with anyone, you know, and, and kind of fit in. And so people, I think generally wanted to gravitate towards us, especially during the later years of high school. But yeah, you know, the, the eating disorder stuff became more of a faint, issue for me. Didn't really think about it much. Didn't really feel like I was struggling a whole lot with it. Academics wise, I, I, I didn't really try too hard. You know, I can't say that I gave it my best effort overall. I, I did enough to get B's uh, and, you know, some A's, but uh, math and science, whew, those were always hard for me still to this day. I just do not like either of those. But yeah, high school overall, it was a uh, it was a really good experience, and I just noticed that, especially my senior year, my senior year of high school, I feel like I really kind of blossomed in in a way, and a lot of that has to do with my senior year uh, language teacher, Mister Bang, Tim Bang. 
He was probably the first teacher that I ever had throughout my, you know, 12 years of school that really spoke life into me and really pointed out the good qualities that I have. So with uh, his class, it was a college level, uh, like language class, right? So we would write papers and we would do speeches. And he is the guy that I credit for, you know, just kind of my speaking ability. Not that my speaking ability is super amazing, but... Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> your opinion, but he... people's opinion. <laughs> but uh, he just really spoke life into me and he said, Terry, you're really good at this. And he helped kind of shore up some things for me and, and fine tune things for me and just really gave me hope that, man, I can go on and be successful in something in my life. And so I owe a lot to uh, to Tim Bang, for sure. That's awesome that you had a teacher that was speaking life over you during a kind of sounds like you're just coming out of that difficult season of dealing with an eating disorder. So your senior year of high school, did you know what you wanted to go to school for or where you wanted to go to school? Not really. I didn't really have any big dreams of moving away from home or moving out of state and going to a different school. I, I've always had pretty small dreams for myself. And um, yeah, after senior year, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went to the technical college in the area and I did a year and a half of my generals. And then December of 2009, I'd finally made up my mind that, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go for this counseling thing. It was something that was always on my mind and something that I always thought I could do. I remember in middle school and high school, uh, back in the good old AOL instant messenger days, uh, my friends would, would go on and they would, I don't know, kind of inevitably just talk to me about their their stuff, their issues, their problems. And I would just listen and I would just encourage them and support them. And they would comment on how much better they felt after talking to me. And I felt good after talking to them and encouraging them. And I'm just like, huh, you know, that, that'd be a pretty cool way to, to make a living. But I didn't have confidence in myself that I could do it. You know, with becoming a therapist, that's a big commitment financially and time-wise. And again, I, I didn't really have big dreams for myself. So figured out, again, just go to the technical college, get my generals. And then I finally made the push to uh, go for uh, a degree in community psychology, which is kind of the stepping stone into uh, the next phase of becoming a therapist. And so, yeah, transferred to St. Cloud State and started that journey. So it obviously sounds like God had his hand of protection over you throughout your life and some really dark times and provided you with the love and support that you needed throughout it. What was your relationship like with God during this time? So I think I mentioned it earlier fully, you know, it's primarily a, a Catholic community. And so I grew up Catholic. We would usually go to Saturday night mass every week. We didn't really like waking up for Sunday mornings. I think they had it at like seven in the morning or something like that. Something crazy, maybe eight. And so we would always go Saturday nights and I would do the religion classes Wednesday nights. And 
you know, I was baptized Catholic, went to first communion, confirmation, the whole nine yards. And I, what I'm about to say, I'm not putting down the Catholic church in any way. I don't think the, the Catholic church is bad. I'm just telling you my experience. And my experience is that it was really boring. <laughs> it was just so dry and repetitive and long and drawn out. And I didn't really understand why we were doing it. Like in, in all my years of going to church, I had never really understood why we were going other than, and I guess the one thing that I got out of everything was that, well, you know, if I don't, God's just kind of this big angry dude just waiting to smite me to hell. And so going to church will make him happy with me. And so I'll go. That was kind of my idea of God. And, you know, with, with Catholics and, and going to religion classes, you know, you'd have to memorize the Ten Commandments. And so I think, you know, even just having that, you know, it was a good moral foundation to have that. But as far as actually like learning in church or things like that, I never really got anything out of it. And honestly, probably a big reason is because I wasn't paying attention. I, I, I I don't know. I kind of have this skill where I can entertain myself no matter what setting that I'm in. And it's, it's uh, been a great skill to have at various points in my life. And so in church, what I would do to get through the hour is I would go through an entire Kiss album. Kiss was my favorite band growing up. And I would listen to their CDs nonstop. And I had every single song literally every single song they did memorized as far as the drum beat, what the guitars were doing, the lyrics, the whole nine yards. And so I would, in my mind, listen through a Kiss album to get me through church. And so that's what I did. And when I turned 18, you know, that was kind of the point where mom and dad were just like, well, you know, you can kind of make your own decision. You can keep coming to church with us or not. I'm just like, well, I'd rather go hang out with my friends on Saturday night. So deuces, you know, I'm not doing this anymore. I just didn't really have an interest in God. Not that I didn't believe in him, but uh, I just didn't really see a point in going to church until November of 2009 happened. So earlier in the summer of 2009, I started having some weird things with my ears start to happen where one of them would just like close up and I would get this really loud ringing noise and it would just cause so much panic in me because it wouldn't go away. And it, it happened periodically and it usually happened like in the evening before I would go to bed. And so I would just try to go to bed. And then when I'd wake up in the morning, it was gone. I'm just like, whew, okay, good. But just other weird stuff, like my ears were just popping all the time or I couldn't get them to pop. And so I would I went to the ear, nose, and throat doctor so many times trying to figure out what's going on. And they tried a few different medications and nothing really worked. And then I remember November of 2009, I had went to go hang out at a friend's house. And I was probably there for a minute because the ringing came back. My ears, I think both ears closed up and the ringing came back. And I, again, I panicked and I left. I'm just like, I, I got to go. And so I would 
um, put my ear on a heat pack to just kind of see if that would help. And, and it didn't. And I remember just being at a point where I couldn't sleep and I would just cry out to God, God, please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away all throughout the night. Like I literally couldn't sleep. And then, um, he did one day. And I remember waking up early that morning, I made an appointment for the ear, nose and throat doctor. And we had talked about getting tubes put in my ears. And I was just like, I want those tubes in now. The ringing's finally gone. I don't want to go through this again. I want them in now. So I went in and had them placed, which is a not fun procedure. But uh, shortly after that, I think it was just as a result of my ears adjusting to the tubes, I could hear things maybe better. And um, I think there was also some trauma done to my ears. And so the ringing came back. And this time it didn't let up for about a week. And that was probably one of the worst weeks of my life. I remember just being depressed. I remember, you know, not, not being able to get any sleep. Obviously you got the ringing and and you, you get no rest, no reprieve. And I'd wake up and I would drive to school, which I don't even know how I did that at the time, but I would drive to school and then go to school and then go to work. And I would, by by the end of that week, I was basically a living like skeleton, almost like I had no life to me. I was so just depressed and I wanted to die. I literally wanted to die. I would have dreams of going up uh, into the kitchen in the middle of the night and taking a knife and uh, stabbing myself through the forehead of all places, which just really messed up and just dreams of like, going into my mom and dad's bed when they were sleeping and just saying, you know, I love you. Goodbye. And then stabbing myself in front of them. Like I was not in a good place whatsoever. And, um, this went on for a week. And I remember I, I went to the doctor and they put me on Ambien and it took a couple nights, but eventually I was able to get some sleep. And then with getting some sleep, the ringing started to go away and I didn't notice it as much. I'm not a doctor. I'm probably going to butcher this, but as far as my understanding, you know, ringing the, the medical term is tinnitus or tinnitus, depending on how you pronounce it. And the, the noise is actually like in your brain, like your brain's kind of emitting that noise. And obviously when you're not getting rest or sleep, your brain's not getting that chance to kind of like turn off and rest. And so it would just make the ringing that much worse. And so for me, sleep was really helpful and helped it kind of go away. And I remember, again, during those nights, I would just, you know, five hours a night. Because I would be lucky if I got one to two hours of sleep a night for for that week straight. I would just lay in bed. God, please take this away. God, please take this away. Please take this away. I I had no other option. I I, I felt like he was the only one that could. And so when it did go away, as like a thank you to God, I felt like, well, I should probably start going back to church again then. And so I, I remember I like woke up really early on a Sunday to go to church with my grandpa Ernie. And, uh, but then my ears got better and I didn't really think about it. And then I didn't really think about God again. And so that uh, kind of leads into the next phase of my story where January of 2010, uh, a little background for you guys. In high school, I was always the kid who 
said, I'm never going to drink. I'm never going to do drugs. And I didn't, you know, all throughout high school and, and up to that point, never did anything. Well, I am a huge Vikings fan. And in January of 2010, we were playing the New Orleans Saints. And if we won that game, we were going to the Super Bowl. And at this point in my life, like the Vikings were my life. I'd gotten their, the horn tattooed on my arm. They were totally an idol in my life, you know, looking back at it now. And I was watching the game with my buddies. And those of you who know what happened in the game, you know, it was just very just frustrating and, and depressing. And I remember after the game ended, I turned to my buddies and I said, let's go get me drunk. Like I just was so devastated and it's so stupid looking back at it now. I mean, this is a freaking game we're talking about, but I said, let's, let's go get me drunk. I'm ready. Let's do this. And they're just like, what, Terry, you bad boy, you. And so we went to, uh, to my buddy's dorm in, uh, at St. John's university. And, um, yeah, I think I drank some tequila and some Coors Light, which I did not like. That combo sounds really hard on the Yeah, <laughs> uh, did not taste good, but uh, definitely got me drunk. And uh, obviously, I had to go home at some point, and I didn't have anyone to, to drive me home. I was I drove myself to the dorm. I had to drive myself back home, and so I drove home drunk, and... I wish I could say that was the last time that I did it. I did it a couple more times. Stupidest thing I've ever done. Looking back at it, God's protection totally over me and over the roads and, uh, you know, and, and other people. But I drove home drunk and I remember getting home and the room was spinning and I couldn't fall asleep. And then I woke up and had a little bit of a hangover and there was a part of me that liked it. There was a part of me that liked kind of being the bad boy and uh, kind of got into a pattern where, yeah, on, on weekends, not every weekend, but on the weekends, I would go to kind of the party house that all my friends would go to, uh, drink, get drunk and drive home drunk because I had to either go to work in the morning or I just didn't want my parents to like question what, I, what was I doing the night before? Why didn't I come home? And again, this, the stupidest thing I've ever done, I think I probably drove home drunk a total of four or five times. And God's, that, that, that's all I can say is God's grace and his protection was over me because that could have been tragic. I could have killed someone, someone, you know, I could have killed myself. It, it was just stupid. And so God's protection was over me during that time. And even other things, you know, I had met a girl in college at that time and we went on, I think just like one date to a Vikings game. And then we had gotten tickets for actually the playoff game before the Saints game. And a couple of her friends were coming with, and I didn't know these friends. I've never met them before. We, uh, we drove down there. I drove her car because they were all planning on drinking. So I was going to be sober cab. And so I was driving her car and I didn't want to adjust like the steering wheel or anything like that, uh, mess up her car. Cause I was kind of into this girl. We were driving on interstate 94 down to the twin cities and I see a cop with his lights on. And initially he was pulling over somebody else. I'm just like, Oh, okay. You know, I think I'm doing okay then. 
And then he like pulls up in the lane next to me as we're both going, you know, I think 80 miles an hour is what he clocked us at. And he just pointed like pull over. So I pulled over and he said, do you have any idea how fast you, you were going? And I said, honestly, no, I was just keeping up with traffic. And he said, I, I had you clocked at 80 miles an hour. And I just said, oh, I am sorry. I had no idea I was going that fast. He asked for the insurance. And again, I'm driving this girl's car. She didn't have her insurance card on her. And so he had to call the insurance company. And I think they, they must have been closed on like a Sunday or something like that. And we were all in our Vikings gear. I, I told him we were going down to the Vikings game. And he was super nice. And he said, you know what? You know, I don't want to make you late for the game. You know, just have her call on the insurance tomorrow. It's going to be fine. I'm like, okay, sweet. The cop walks away, but then he comes back and he goes, someone drinking alcohol in here? And the the girl and her friends, yeah, they, they were all drinking, but nobody said anything. And so he said it again. Is anyone drinking alcohol in here? And I think somebody in the back said, well, yeah, I am. And this began a long interrogation process, uh, myself included. And uh, I, I think one or two more cops ended up driving up to us and, and helping out with the interrogation. And I was just like freaking out. I'm just like, I don't even know these people besides this girl. Like, I'm just wanting to go to the Vikings game. Like at this point, this was the week before I had drank for the first time. I'm just like, I'm just like clean, innocent Terry here. Like, I, I just want to watch the Vikings. That's all I want to do. And so yeah, the cops search the car and they open up the trunk and they proceed to pull out so much alcohol that it fills up the entire hood of the cop's car. I had no idea there was that much alcohol in there. And the cop was questioning me. He was like, did you know? I mean, you're driving the car. Did you know this was all in here? It's like, honestly, I have no idea. I don't even know these people. I kind of like this girl. I, I just, I, I just want to go to the Vikings game. And uh, he had me, you know, blow a breathalyzer and obviously nothing showed up. But uh, turns out, yeah, a couple of those people had marijuana on them too and other drugs. And I remember just being like, what the frick is my life right now? What is happening? And they finished their interrogation, their search. Everyone gets back in the car. He gives everybody in the car besides myself a minor uh, two of the people who had drugs and paraphernalia, they got charged with that. And then I think one of the older guys had like open bottle ticket. I got nothing out of the whole deal. I, and again, God's grace, like I got nothing, not even like a warning or anything. The cop, I think just was able to see that this was just some schmuck who's along for the ride because he's interested in this girl and he loves the Vikings and he let me off. And I remember being like, whoa, yeah, we get down to the game and obviously I'm, I'm kind of feeling bad because, you know, I technically, you know, got us pulled over. If I didn't speed, then these people probably wouldn't have gotten a minor or any other ticket. And I'm just like apologizing profusely. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they're just like, no, nah, man, it's cool. It's, it was going to happen sometime anyways. So I'm just like, mm, all right. So we went down to the game. And um, yeah, I mean, just God's protection over, over my life during that time was super, super huge. Uh, again, I drove drunk four or five times, drank total four or five times. And um, 
yeah, just so thankful that God didn't let anything bad happen to me or anyone around me. So it sounds like you kind of realize the shenanigans that drinking can potentially bring into your life. At what point did you make a conscious decision to kind of get out of that phase? So uh, January 2010, man, that was an eventful month for me, apparently, you know, with the ear stuff and the drinking and the Viking stuff. Uh, that was also my first semester at St. Cloud State. And St. Cloud State has the reputation for being like the biggest partying school in Minnesota, if not one of the biggest party schools in the USA. And uh, I actually never really partied, you know, on campus or anything like that. Um, again, God showed up. God um, brought a friend in my life. Her name is Sierra. And if I had never met her, I think my life would look really, really different. Uh, Sierra and I were both uh, majoring in community psychology. We uh, had a few classes together, and she actually knew some of my friends from high school that were a grade older than me. And so we, we kind of connected with that, and she invited me to a Bible study. And I didn't know anything, again, about the Bible. I never read it. I was never really encouraged to read it. But I'm just like, okay, I mean, she seems pretty cool. Might as well go. And so we went to Westwood Church, and they were doing a Bible study on, like, creationism. And I remember going there for the first time, and there was, there was a decent group of people there. I don't think you were at that one, at that first one that I was at. And I remember walking in and meeting everyone and just being blown away of, like, how nice everyone was. And like how genuinely nice everyone was. I, I, I feel like I have pretty good discernment. And no one was fake. Everyone was, was just very inviting, introducing themselves. And I don't know, it was just like a breath of fresh air. And another thing that stood out to me was that when they talked about Jesus, they talked about him as if they knew him, like they were friends with him. It's like, that's kind of weird. Like, I don't know much about the dude. I just know he's hanging on the cross in the Catholic church. I don't really know why. And and I didn't, I didn't really understand why Jesus died and why he you know was crucified. And I remember thinking that's a little weird, but I think I want that for myself. And something just kind of clicked into my mind, you know, where I think this was kind of what I was looking for. So I started going to this Bible study and that went from probably like January to June or something. Cause we met later on towards the end of it. And during that time, those first few months, I was also still hanging out with my friends from high school, drinking, partying. And I remember one night waking up the next morning and having a vague memory of texting Sierra, but not knowing for sure if I did. And this was before smartphones. These were flip phones. And like you didn't you couldn't go back and like read through the text threads like you could now. I remember like waking up in a panic, like, oh no, did I like text her like something stupid when I was drunk? And that was kind of the moment for me where I was just like, you know what? I got a pretty good thing going here with a, a great group of new friends who just seem to be, as Denny said in his testimony, uh, energy givers instead of energy suckers. And I kind of made up my mind at that time that I think that probably would have been like March or April, just like, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. It's not worth it. I don't want to lose this awesome thing I'm building. 
And I just slowly kind of detached from my high school friends and spent more time with, uh, with this new group of friends and continuing to go to Bible study and really starting to build a relationship with God and understand who God was. Because again, during my Catholic upbringing, I didn't really show much of a interest in actually understanding who God was, right? I didn't know he could be kind of understood to a certain extent. And so in May of that year, I think that's when you and I had first met. I remember, yeah, I think it was probably the first time you were there and you were sitting on the floor. You weren't sitting on a couch. We were in a group of people. And I remember like you would speak up and you just seemed so smart and and you are smart. Like I'm not saying that past tense, but you just seemed really smart and intelligent and you were also really hot. (laughs) And so I was just like, huh. You know, wouldn't mind getting to know her at some point. And uh, also at that time, I'd gone out and bought a Bible and started reading it for the first time in my life. And I couldn't get enough of it, guys. I read the Bible cover to cover. May is when I started, and then I finished it in October. Now, granted, I didn't really understand a lot of what I was reading. I didn't understand just kind of the structure of the Bible. I was just like, well, it's a book. You start at the beginning, you read at the end. I remember uh, I asked my coworker who was a Christian, I think I was in like Exodus or something like that. I'm just like, when is Jesus going to show up in this thing? (laughs) She's like, you got a long ways to go before you get there. She said, you could just read the New Testament. But again, just kind of how my mind works. I'm just like, nope, I got to go in order. But yeah, I was just really searching out God hardcore at that time. So obviously when God is doing an awesome work in our life, we can face resistance in many forms, whether that's um, sin or kind of attacks of lies. Did you ever face that during this time? Yeah. You know, guys, the devil sucks. I I hate him. And uh, I, I try my best to kick his butt every day by glorifying God. And um, yeah, at this time, as I was building my relationship with God, I definitely experienced a lot of resistance and just kind of a pull away from God. And for me, that came, uh, again, just with concerns of just my identity and and who's ever going to want me. You know, I'm, I'm 20 years old at this point, never dated anyone. I didn't really see that happening anytime in the future. And that led me into a, a pretty bad pornography addiction. And uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely not something that I'm proud of. Um, as Ted said in his testimony, every man, most men, I should say, struggle with with it at some point in some way. And that's when I struggled with it. I, I just, uh, I fell into the addiction pretty bad and uh, wanted to get out of it, but I just felt so helpless. I, I felt so powerless. I would try to put like blockers on my computer or you know, just tell myself, oh, I'm just not going to look at it today. But then you you look at it or, or you override the blockers. And it was just this really, I don't know, kind of crippling thing because I didn't talk to anybody about it. I had so much shame with it. And I just felt super alone and that this was just something that I was fighting on my own. And just also the confusion too of just like, well, man, what if these new friends that I have, these, you know, great Christian friends that I have, what if they found out about this? Would they 
think of me different? Would they not even want to be friends with me? And so a lot of anxiety, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of just feelings of being out of control. And so that led to a flare up of the anorexia. Now, it wasn't a super bad one. I was, again, God's grace, God's covering. I caught it very early on. I could see myself, feel myself going down that dark trail. And so I reached out for help and I went to therapy. And best thing I ever did for myself at that point, I was so low at that point, just overall depression and anxiety, you know, addictions of of multiple kinds. And I just... I, I'm so thankful that I had someone to talk to and my therapist made such a huge impact on my life. And especially at that season of my life, and it was still a struggle, you know, but it was getting a little bit better, but just overall, it it was still a pretty heavy burden to carry just everything going on. And so November 7th, 2010, I was in my room and I remember I just kind of got down on my knees and I was praying and I just said, God, like, I can't do this. I, I can't do this on my own. You know, whether it's the pornography stuff or the eating disorder stuff or the depression or anxiety, I can't do this on my own. But from what I read in the Bible and from what people say, you can. You can kind of break these chains off of me. You can help me overcome this. And so, God, I just give myself to you. I just give up control of my life and I'm just kind of handing everything over to you for you to go and do your thing. And I didn't know it at the time, what I was doing, but I was giving my life to the Lord at that time. You know, that's when I would say I got saved November 7th of 2010. And honestly, after that, both those addictions kind of went away. You know, the, the pornography went away, the eating disorder stuff went away, and I was finally able to experience freedom in my life. And that freedom could only come from Christ. There was nothing that I could do. There was nothing really no one else could do for me. Only Jesus could do it. And I'm just so thankful that through a really, really dark season of my life that I never want to go through again, that Jesus's light shined brighter and he used it for good by helping me come into a relationship with him. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm just so thankful that that you were able to be free from the addictions that you faced at that time. Um, I remember pretty specifically, I think it was maybe like a couple of weeks after you had given your life to the Lord. Um, we were at Caribou Coffee and uh, we were kind of trying to figure out what we wanted our friendship to look like. Do you want to get into that? Yeah. So we won't get too much into it because if you guys listen to Abby's testimony, we talked about it on there too, but yeah, you and I had kind of started talking a little bit. We'd meet up at Caribou uh, Coffee, and uh, I infam- infamously didn't pay for your coffee. And I, I wouldn't buy anything for myself because I'm not a coffee drinker. So I guess, uh, you know, there dashed that hope that you could call it a date. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, we were talking. And uh, again, I was really new in my faith, had just given my life to the Lord, and we had gotten to that point where we got to figure out what we're doing with this friendship. We're kind of at that stage where we got to define it. And I just told you, I'm not at that spot right now. Like I I just need to focus on Jesus. I need to focus on becoming a man of God and learning how to lead myself so I can lead someone else. Mm -hmm. I remember specifically like 
hearing you just share your heart with me. And I'm like, dang, this guy's future wife is going to be so blessed. And it just so happened to turn, as it turns out, it was me. So that's a cool memory because like I said, I can remember that very vividly. So time goes on. Uh, going into January of 2011, what was different that year compared to the past year as far as your relationship with God? How how did you choose to grow in your faith? Man, everything was different in that year. Again, January 2010, I was dealing with the ear stuff. I was, you know, getting into the party scene. I was drunk driving. I was not making good choices. And I, I didn't really know God. January of 2011, I knew God and I was on the right path. And so I I grew by continuing to just read my Bible, be a part of Bible studies, seek out really good churches. At that time, I was going to Calvary Church. And it was at Calvary Church that I had gotten baptized. And that was a really cool experience. As you shared on your testimony, we got baptized on the same day, uh, different churches, but uh, I got baptized. And I know that was kind of a hard thing for my mom, you know, because that was essentially me leaving the Catholic faith, which was very important for her. There's a long lineage of that on her side of the family. And uh, it took her a little while, but she came around and she came and my whole family came and it was just a really powerful experience. I remember getting dunked in the tank and coming back up and it it sounds cheesy, but it felt like the heavens were opened and there was angels in the room. And I'm, and I'm sure there were, but it just, I don't know, it felt amazing. And, and so, yeah, I took that step and, uh, just continued to, you know, like I said, read my Bible, go to Bible studies, be around energy givers instead of energy suckers and, uh, just worked on it that way. So shortly after the day that you got baptized and I got baptized at separate churches, um, I ended up being hospitalized for a short period of time. Well, I say short period of time, but it was four weeks. Yeah, it was supposed to be a short period yeah. of time. Um, what was going through your mind in regards to our friendship and our relationship at that time? Yeah. So again, if you guys listened to Abby's testimony, you would have heard that right before she got baptized, we had that define the relationship talk. And in it, we set boundaries where we just said, well, we can't talk to each other every day. Um in order to just have a healthy friendship. Well, then she gets hospitalized and those boundaries went out the window. I really wanted to talk to her every day. I felt like I needed to talk to her every day. And I think it was at that moment where I realized that, yeah, maybe this isn't the right time for us to date, but you're going to be the person that I'm going to start dating. And I, I don't know, it just felt like a sense of like loyalty to you and like I wanted to help protect you and just be there for you any way that I could. And so, yeah, you were, you ended up being there for close to a month. And, uh, when you got out, we, we kind of started talking a lot again every day and we were, we were both still pretty busy. I was still in college. You were wrapping up college and then, you, you had went on that trip to Alaska that you guys can hear about in Abby's testimony. You came back and then that's when you and I really kind of started getting serious. I uh, finally built up the courage to ask you to meet me after youth service one night because we were both youth leaders at that point and uh, just asked if you could 
just hang out afterwards because there was something I wanted to talk to you about. And so we went back into the sanctuary. No one was there. And I just said that, hey, like I, I really like you and I want to pursue a relationship with you. Uh, we don't have to put a label on it. We don't got to put pressure like be boyfriend, girlfriend, but I just want to state my intentions to you. And you said you, you felt the same. And, uh, and so that was kind of the start of that. I think, uh, yeah, we had went to a youth leaders retreat shortly afterwards. We had our first date, Lion King in 3D. We felt the love the night. <laughs> so cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I feel like I was very gentlemanly. I had asked if it was okay if I put my arm around you, to which you said yes. So I was really excited about that. <laughs> and then I think it was like maybe the day after or something you had texted me just like, hey, like, I know you said you didn't want to put a label on it, but it's okay if we just call each other boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm just like, yeah, that's that, that's fine. And then you're like, is it okay if I update my Facebook status to is in a relationship? So cheesy. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you know, it's the first time I, I could ever do that. So, so yeah, we did that. And then like our first official date as a couple was to a Vikings game. And I got to meet your, one of your sisters for the first time there. And yeah, our relationship really just happened fast. We I think, you know, I, I had you meet my family, not even a month after that. Yeah, because it was around, I remember we met at Molitor's and there was like a Halloween themed wedding happening. And we all got sick from the food that we ate there. Yeah, that was the bummer. <laughs> but it was, it was that night we had went back to where you were living and we were just kind of cuddling on the couch, watching a movie. And you said, I love you. And, uh, I wasn't expecting it, but I felt the same way and I said it back. And shortly after that, we started talking about engagement and three- Not that same night, but- Right, right. Later That's... on in the month. <laughs> yep. And uh, yeah, January, I had uh, proposed to you, kind of put together this little scavenger hunt with uh, Des St. John, who you were living with, her and Kirby. You and a group of girls were going on the scavenger hunt and- uh, for yours, they had blindfolded you and they drove you to the St. John's or St. Ben's campus. Cause that's where you and I had first like really talked. That would have been August like an of official meetup. Yeah. Like we, we knew each other in passing, like at Westwood, um, Bible study, but we didn't actually talk, talk until that night at St. Ben's. Yeah, that would have been August of 2010. It was lightning out and you very cheesily put my put your finger on my arm and went like like it was hot. <laughs> you can tell that I haven't had much experience flirting or dating at this point. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty evident, but I didn't either, so it was okay. <laughs> but yeah, um so the, kind of full circle, they brought you back there blindfolded and when they opened up the blindfold, I was on one knee with the ring out and before i could even finish uh asking you to marry me you had taken the ring out of the box yourself and put it on your finger <laughs> and so excited and uh then i think eventually you, you kind of let me like oh yeah. You, yeah i don't sound needy at all do yeah, I? <laughs> yeah you, you, you aren't desperate um but yeah not uh, desperate just excited yeah and uh yeah you uh you, you said yes thankfully and 
we got married in August of 2012, and August was was a pretty big month for me. I'd graduated from college with my bachelor's degree in community psychology, and uh, didn't really have a job at the time because I was interning and uh, just working very part-time at an RV dealership, but that was not where I wanted to be. And so it was like, okay, I got some money saved up. I'm just going to you know, take these next couple weeks off, uh, get married, and then after we get married, I'll, I'll get a job. Well, naive Terry thought that he could get a pretty decent job with a four-year psychology degree. You can't. And I didn't want to go back to school for my master's degree at that point because I was just so like done with school. I had literally gone to school nonstop from the age of five until 22. I'm just like, I'm done. I, I, I don't want to do anymore. And that led to a pretty rough season for us. You you had a good job. You, you've always had a good job at, at the hospital. And I was just trying to find something to, to pay bills. And so I had applied at a job at Best Buy because I, I love like technology and gadgets and things like that. And I think I had just applied to be like a um, I would load the truck and unload the truck and deliver stuff. And the manager, when he was interviewing me, kind of did a switcheroo and said, well, I don't need someone to do that. I need more salesmen. Here's a pencil. Tell me why I should buy this pencil. It's like, uh, I don't know. Buy it if you want. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Can I interest you in starting up a credit card to take a percentage off your purchase today? <laughs> yeah, I. It, it just was not a good fit, but it was a job. And so I took it and that was a really sucky season. I despised going to work. I yeah. worked in the evenings, so I didn't get to see you, Abby, a whole lot. Just felt like I was a fish out of water. I was working with, you know, a lot of people around my age, but a little younger, but they were very still into the college scene, into the partying scene. And I'd grown out of that. I was married and I was ready to just, you know, be an adult. And again, just felt like a fish out of water. Ended up losing that job. And again, didn't want to go back to school because I was still burnt out. And for at least a month, I, I had applied for a jobs everywhere and I couldn't get hired. And I remember just feeling so defeated as a man. Just like, okay, I get married and I can't even provide financially for my family. Like I, I felt so just awful about myself and I wasn't getting any you know, calls back for jobs or anything. And I remember just, it was on our couch in the apartment. I just prayed and just like, God, what do you want me to do? I said, Terry, I want you to go to graduate school. And at this point in time, I was pretty confident that God was calling you to do that. But obviously you're stubborn and I'm stubborn. So I knew that at this point, I just needed to pray that you'd be obedient and listen to what God had for you. Um, so that was really cool seeing you step into that because I know it was a huge sacrifice on on your part. What are some things looking back that uh, you felt like you learned our first year of marriage together? I think the biggest thing I learned was that your love for me was not based off performance. And I don't know I feel like just kind of growing up that that's again, that's how we showed love, right? Like we we do things for each other. we we provide, we work and I was working for a little bit there and then I lost that job. And then I, there was a period of time where I didn't have a job. And, and so just seeing the love that you had for me during that time, just like, I don't know, it just kind of opened up a new 
layer of like connection between us, I think. And I think the cool thing is too, that also helped me see another level of God's love for me. You know, I, I love how in Ashley Benoit's testimony, she said that her husband, Derek, that God best displays his love for her through Derek. And I, and I feel like you do the same for me. And so I'd say that was the biggest thing that I learned that first year of marriage. I just remember too, specifically reaching out to my dad um, in regards to just being a provider. Do you want to kind of share that story? Yeah, I reached out to your dad and I just apologized. I said, I'm sorry, I'm letting you down, your family down, your daughter down. I can't provide for her. And he said, you know, these words that still stick with me to this day and, and just changed a lot for me. He said, Terry, Abby doesn't need a provider. She needs a friend. Mm-hmm. And and that's true. You, you know, you got a good job right out of college, you know, uh, you know, your your big girl job and, you know, a job that has benefits and retirement and all that stuff. So so you were set and and now being married, I mean, we were kind of set, but yeah, that you didn't necessarily need the provider, you needed a friend. And that just took a lot of pressure off of me. And I think that allowed me to just kind of press into time and prayer to really uh, just hear what God was calling me to do. And so like I said, he called me uh, to go to graduate school and I went to Liberty University. It's the world's largest Christian university. And I knew I wanted to go to a school that was faith-based. After being you know, at St. Cloud State for four years, uh, I, I just knew I didn't want to go back to a secular school. And so I did my master's degree online. Uh, they're located in Lynchburg, Virginia. I flew out there a couple times to do what's called an intensive. It's where you take a whole class in a week. And I loved flying out there. Um, I, I had so many cool experiences out there, met so many wonderful people. Uh, Jim and Sharon Foyt, they took me in during my time out there to let me stay with them and were just wonderful hosts. And I, I loved my experience at Liberty. I, uh, I'm a little sad I wasn't able to do it all on campus, but logistically it just wouldn't have worked out. So yeah, it took me three and a half years, I think. And I was able to get my master's degree in marriage and family counseling. So what was the process of becoming fully certified after you graduated from Liberty? Yeah, so it, it's quite a process. So you have to get, and I should know these numbers right offhand because they're in my code of ethics, but I'm pretty sure it's like 5,000 hours of clinical experience with, I believe it's 1,000 hours of supervision, 500 individual, 500 group and the clinical hours have to be kind of divvied up a certain way too. So you have to do that, which takes a while. And then you have to pass a written exam to become an LAMFT, a licensed associate marriage and family therapist. And then you have to go before the board and do an oral exam. And I did that in March of 2020, right as COVID was hitting. And Day before the state shut down. Yeah, literally God's, man, God's perfect timing. The day before everything shut down, I was able to take my test. And I remember that following Monday, I'd gotten an email from the board saying that any test that was scheduled this week and in the future is going to be postponed. And uh, it's it's obviously a big deal to to get licensed, you know, to first of all, finish 
that journey, you know, in, in total, it took 10 years for me to become a licensed marriage and family therapist from the four years of my bachelor's degree to the three and a half of my master's degree to getting the clinical experience took 10 years. And so, uh, just having that feather in my cap was a huge accomplishment. And then also financially, once you're fully licensed, you know, that makes a big difference as well. And so it's definitely a process. And yeah, like I said, I'm just so thankful that God scheduled my test when he did so that I could just get that process done and uh, not have to worry about, well, you know, especially at that time, COVID was so new, who the heck knows when they were going to be doing tests. So just very thankful that God's timing is perfect. Yeah, definitely. sounds like it. Um, So prior to getting married, were there any concerns that you had or others had for you in um, having a relationship with someone with a chronic illness? No, you know, so yeah, I mean, I guess going back to our marriage, um, I remember talking to your mom, I'd called her up when we were dating and I just told her, you know, kind of my intentions that, or maybe I even texted her. I think I texted her, just told her my intentions and just said that the cystic fibrosis, which again, plug for Abby's testimony. If you want to hear her journey with cystic fibrosis, check that out. But you having cystic fibrosis was not a deal breaker for me. It was actually something that, not that I liked, but it was just like, oh, I can take care of you. You know, I I saw an opportunity there where I can kind of be a caretaker for you. And, um, and so I just said that, you know, it's not a, not a big deal to me. And she said that, you know, she appreciates that, but I maybe don't understand the full gravity of it yeah. at that time. <laughs> and so... Um, you kind of got to be a visitor in that aspect of my life for a very short period of time. Um, going back to my hospitalization, I believe like in 2013, so right around the time I just started a new job um, at the Heart Center in electrophysiology, I ended up getting hospitalized again. What was that experience like for you to see as a husband instead of a friend this time around? Yes, that would have been what, 2013? 2013. That was tough. You know, it's kind of hard not to have those thoughts come back of like, you know, when you were hospitalized in January of 2011, it's like, okay, well, here we go again, or, you know, what's going to happen now? But just seeing everything that you had to go through. I remember at that point, like they would wake you up once an hour on the hour, uh, during the middle of the night to like prick your fingers for, for the diabetes. And I just, man, I just felt so bad for you. I remember I think at one point, um, this is when I did have a job. And at one point I was just like, well, I, I gotta go back and work and I didn't want to leave. And I remember just sobbing leaving the hospital. Yeah. I just like felt so bad leaving you there, but you were just like, no, like you need to go and you need to do your schooling and and go work. And so that was definitely a reality check. And, um, I'd still spent a couple of days with you there, slept in the very uncomfortable hospital uh, yeah. cot, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it, it was maybe an eye opener, but I never really felt too overwhelmed by it. And I just credit that to God, yeah. you know, to this day, uh, you know, with the medicine that you're on and, and just all the amazing things God has done with you, 
like I still have faith that God is going to completely heal you on this side of heaven. And so for me, whenever something does happen to you health wise, I think over the years, a, yeah, I've probably gotten desensitized to it just because it is such a kind of a common thing. Not that that's your fault by any means. It's just a reality of cystic fibrosis. Right. But, um, but I think just, you know, my faith in God has grown through it all just because time after time he's brought healing to you mm-hmm. and, and he's brought you to where you're at. And, uh, it's, it's been awesome being married to you. Like I obviously would not trade it. I, I never like think to myself, well, what would it be like to not be married to someone with all the stuff you have going on? Right. Like I don't want anyone else. You're the only one that I've dated. You're the only one that I've kissed. You're, you're, you're my one and only. So I'm very blessed to have Mm -hmm. you. Same here. Um, I just remember specifically when you and I had started dating, I remember how like you would look at me and just like my heart would melt. And I always referred to like your gaze as like Jesus eyes. Cause I felt like Jesus was showing his love for me through you. And you still do that to this day. And I'm so thankful to have you in my life and to have you continu- continually speak life over me. Um, and like my mom said, one of the perks of being your wife is that I have a therapist at home too. So <laughs> can't escape work no matter how hard yeah, you try. Yeah, send help guys. No, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, maybe not sometimes. No. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, man, it's been a little over nine years since we've been married. And I feel that... Uh, we're just kind of getting started here with what God has planned for us. So yeah, it's been been awesome. So Terry, it seems like we've kind of covered a lot within this amount of time in regards to overcoming eating disorders, overcoming pornography addiction, centering your identity in Christ and allowing him to shape your view of both him and of yourself. What are some things that you would want to speak over someone that is dealing with either of those addictions or struggles. I I think, yeah, I mean, it obviously first and foremost, get help. I didn't right away for both of those things. So get help. And, um, Ashley Benoit with her testimony has some great advice on that. And Ted Conrad has some great advice on, uh, the pornography side of things. So I don't know if I really have too much to add, uh, from that end, Um, I would encourage you guys to go and listen to their testimonies if you haven't. But I think ultimately finding your identity in Christ, that's the key. That that was my ticket to freedom. You are not what the world says you are. You are what God says you are. And it's so important to be rooted in that, to find scripture that speaks of who you are, of who he sees you as. And who he's made you to be. I guess one that stands out to me is that I've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And that uh, I am more than a conqueror. Those those are ones that really speak to me. And so for anyone just kind of struggling with, you know, figuring out who they are or taking on words and identities that other people have placed on them, I would encourage you guys to drop all that. Leave it at the cross and just follow after Jesus. Because I can tell you from firsthand experience, 
my life would be so much different if I hadn't done that. I don't, I kind of shudder to think how my life would have turned out and the person that I would have became if I didn't come into that relationship with Jesus. So yeah, I, I, I owe everything to him and I just hope that my story and that all the stories that you've heard on this podcast throughout season one will motivate even just at least one person to seek out uh, an actual, genuine, real relationship with God. Not religion, not following rules, not you know just holding to tradition, but seeking and having a actual relationship with Christ. There's nothing better than it. Well, babe, thank you so much for sharing your heart and just uh, your life, both the highs and the lows and how God came into your life and radically changed your, um, your heart and your mind. And I just want you to know that I love you very much and I'm very grateful for the man that you've become. And I'm excited to see what God has in your future for you too. Oh, I love you too. And the man I am is all due to Jesus. And yeah, onwards and upwards. Well, guys, it's been an awesome first season of Testimonies with Terry. I couldn't have asked for greater guests in Mackenzie Fuchs, Denny Curran, Ashley Benoit, David and Melody Joseph, Ted Conrad, Katie Cushel, and my wife, Abby. It was an honor to also share my testimony, which I hope will encourage anyone who is struggling with low self-esteem, eating disorders, pornography addictions, and religious thinking to turn to Jesus and enter into a relationship with him. Jesus truly is the only thing that brings complete freedom and healing, and I shudder to think who and where I'd be without him. Now that doesn't mean I'm perfect by any means, and I never will be, but it does mean I have the perfect model to look to in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about my testimony, make sure to use the hashtag AskTWT on the TWT social media pages or message your question to those pages. You can also email it to twterrypod at gmail.com. And even though this was the final episode of season one, I am planning on doing a second season to be released in early 2022. So during this time, I'd like to ask you all a favor. Please share this podcast with as many people as you can. I truly believe in these testimonies and the power they have to change the world. Sharing these podcasts on social media, sending them to a friend or family member, or even telling your coworkers about it will greatly help in getting this into as many ears as possible to bring hope and encouragement. Also, subscribing to this podcast, leaving five-star reviews and written reviews on Apple Podcasts is super helpful and appreciative too. I firmly believe this podcast is only scratching the surface of what it can grow into. So thanks again so much for allowing me and my guests for your time to share our stories. And as always, remember to live your life in such a way that glorifies God and kicks Satan's butt.